Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the left page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, writer. And today, <laughs> I'm here for a very special and interesting conversation on a short story, which we haven't done in a while, by Isaac Dineson, which is a, an actual pseudonym or pen names of Karen Blixen, uh, which is the name we'll be using most of the time. And I'm joined by a good friend and research on on a, an incredible subject, which I don't want to mention a word before she does, and a great project that we're going to mention multiple times that we urge you to support, uh, Alessandra Pino. Welcome. Hello. Hi, Frank. Thank you so much for having me here. It's such an honor. Oh, the honor is all mine. Like, I mean, one of the first times you mentioned what you research and work on, I was like, yes, I want to talk about this some more. Yes, please. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm so happy because actually, Frank, we met through Romancing the Gothic, which is this amazing group. It's like, I would say it's like a Gothic family now, uh, led by Dr. Sam Hurst, who is an exceptional person and expert on the early British Gothic. But to be honest, I think that they would be, have the answer to almost any question you might have on the Gothic or would definitely know someone who does. Yes. And they organize free classes and book groups. Um, and I feel really confident that they've changed people's lives through their relentless work. So I just wanted to mention that, especially during the pandemic. And um, yeah, and that's where I met you. So I'm just so happy about that. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, <laughs> there's definitely been a sense of like, well, I, I've met and followed all these lectures and academics via Romancing the Gothic and like, they're nice and fun and great and do amazing work. So like, so do you want to come on? <laughs> Yeah, it's like a small, it's a community. Well, it's getting bigger and bigger. So yeah, yes. it's an absolute, absolute pleasure to be here. And um, at the moment, yes, you mentioned a project. I'm working on a Gothic cookbook, which is the first of its kind, I believe, um, with my friend and amazing food journalist, Ella Bucken, um, who like me, she is so passionate about all things food. So it's a really special project because it has some new insight into how food operates within the context of some of the most well-known Gothic novels. But we'll also have recipes inspired by the texts and the ingredients and food in the texts themselves, um, as well as beautiful hand-drawn illustrations by the talented Lee Henry of Ounce of Style. So the idea behind the Gothic cookbook is that food has a language of its own and it's able to tell a story of its own um, it's not just a prop or an embellishment, it has its own voice, and this voice can let you into some of the novel's darkest secrets, so it's really an interesting project. Um, if you head to unbound.com and look us up, we're a gothic cookbook, you'll find us there, and we've had a really great response so far, um, so thanks to everyone who supported us. Uh, some of the novels that we feature are Dracula, Frankenstein, Rebecca, Beloved, Jane Eyre, and Rosemary's Baby, for example but there are more as well. Yes, and please do uh, check out a Gothic cookbook and support if you can. It's it's incredible. And the illustrations and the recipes, oh, it's just, yeah, no, please, please do if you can. Like that's something that we want to mention, like from the start, because it's an amazing project. And yeah, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, I just wanted to take this opportunity as well, because I think it might be relevant for what we're going to discuss with Babette's Feast. The fact that I'm just completing my PhD at the University of Westminster, and I'm doing research on a Cuban-American writer, actually, called Cristina Garcia and her literary output. Um, and here she uses food to express anxieties about identity 
and her stories are set normally either before or after the 1959, which was when Fidel Castro rose to power after the revolution. Um, and so her narratives are kind of all centered around the upheaval of the revolution. So we'll see how that's also kind of relevant for Babette's, in Babette's case, fleeing the war in, in France. Mm -hmm. And so Christina Garcia makes use of food as a way to reconstruct the past and create new experiences through memories. So I'm formulating um, an original theory which sees the reliving of traumatic experiences through a language that actually relies on food. And I've given it the name of dark food. So that's why I wanted to see if today we can apply that to Babette's feast and have some fun with that. Fun. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that sounds great. Yeah, because like the work you did, and there's also uh, a lecture from you on the YouTube oh, channel from Anson the Gothic about Gothic food and just the role that food can play and really does play, especially in the Gothic. But if you start expanding, you're like, hmm, so food is a pretty important signifier. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. More than we think. And I think many times it's kind of becomes part of a, the subconscious. So many writers don't actually realize that they are utilizing food in that way, just because it's so ingrained in every day and, you know, what people do every day. So it comes out through the writing, but it is a very, very interesting indicator of things that are afoot or you know, what danger lies ahead sometimes, especially in the Gothic, because the Gothic's all about anxiety and fear. So that's where we see it a little bit more, I think. Yeah. But today we're going to talk about, I mean, one of my favourite stories ever. So I'm just so happy that you said yes to this, Frank. I mean, of course. <laughs> I'm like, people suggest, oh, well, how about we talk about this? Yes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've yet to say no to a story, as people okay, suggest, good. because that's kind of the point. It's like, uh, what story that you find interesting or that you want to talk about and whatever it's like it, it's a bit of pressure on the guest but yeah, it's yeah. important <laughs> yeah cool and yeah so maybe let's um start with the actual author I guess because she's such an interesting person I call her Karen Blixen like I've called her Karen Blixen all my life so I know that her pen name is Isaac Dinesen so forgive me because sometimes I interchange the two so either Karen Blixen or Isaac Dinesen um, she was also known, and, and she was born in um, Denmark in um, 1885. Huh. Um, she wrote both in Danish and English, um, so it's quite interesting. I think her, she's more well known for Out of Africa, which was published in 1937, which is an account of her life while living in Kenya. Um, but also, obviously, she's well known for Babette's Feast, and in Denmark, she's particularly noted for her seven Gothic tales, and she was considered several times for the Nobel Prize in Literature, but was not awarded it. Um, yeah, I know, I know. But there's an interesting story about Babette's feast and the, like the origin of Babette's feast. So apparently a friend bet Blixen that she couldn't write a story that would be acceptable to the Saturday Evening Post. So um, Blixen took the bet and inquired about the requirements for the market. And they were apparently right about food because Americans are obsessed with food. So <laughs> she wrote the bet's feast and it was rejected by the Saturday Evening Post. The, the, the story was further rejected by Good Housekeeping, can you believe it? But apparently Babette's Feast then appeared as one of the five tales in Anecdotes of Destiny in 1958. So it's such a great story. It's I such know. a great story. 
it's unbelievable can you imagine that if that story has been rejected then you know what frank i don't feel so bad when i get so many rejections <laughs> true that that makes sense <laughs> <laughs> yes so basically this novella so yeah it's very sparsely written i don't know what you thought about the way it was written frank but i just find it's quite small yeah. But at the same time, it's so multi-layered and it has so many weighty issues. You know, it explores themes of sacrifice and friendship, religion, pleasure. And the story is about Babette, who has fled Paris and the war there in 1871. And after about 15 years spent living with two puritanical sisters in a Norwegian village, this talented chef and refugee from France wins 10,000 francs in the French lottery. But... Instead of using the money to try to return to Paris, she spends all of it on a dinner for some local villagers who up until then have only ever eaten really simple food like fish and soup. So she prepares this magical feast that infuses the small group with love for one another. And I mean, I would have never spent 10,000 francs on that. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of money, especially for like the late 1800s is like that's a lot of money masses yes and we'll see why she spends all of it and what happens because it's so it's quite moving and touching so yeah so kind of the beginning of the story introduces us to to Babette who arrives in this uh, Norwegian town and uh, knocks on the door of Martin and Philippa now they are named respectively after Martin Luther and his friend Philip Melanchthon so we can see where this is going. And they, and they are at the head of this flock of very pious Lutherans who were followers of their late father, the Dean. And as young women, Martine and Philippa each have an encounter with the outside world. So Martine catches the eye of Lawrence Lowenheim, who is an, an officer from Sweden. He's actually been sent by his family to this small town, uh, Berlevag, so that he can reflect over his bad behavior because he'd fallen into debt, I believe. And young Lawrence falls in love with Martine, but he feels speechless in front of her. He can't communicate his love. So he starts feeling very insignificant in this group of believers and he leaves defeated and he vows to make a name for himself in the great world. Um, so that's the story of the first sister, Martine. And then we have Philippa, and she's heard singing in church by Achille Papin, a famous opera singer from France. And he starts giving Philippa singing lessons. But after rehearsing the seduction duet from Don Giovanni, Papin places a very innocent kiss on Philippa's brow, but this disturbs her to the point that she stops her singing lessons and he leaves. So then we have like the picture of these two sisters, very innocent, very pure, um, and their contact with the outside world. And we'll see how this then in both cases kind of comes back in the story in, in different ways. Yeah, it's really interesting how, how it's set up. Like we have this initial scene with Babette and then we are at both of these different stories via the sisters and the limited contact with the outside world like how much they know how much they don't know how they connect and just well well there's a real focus on the food and we're definitely gonna get to it because you know sort of the point and the title but there's a real interesting narrative there about like living objectives and purposes that you have in your life like what is meaningful to you and not and like what is 
what are some of the pressures of the world and even like the whole theological aspect and like the community because it's it's been in the very interesting lights because at times if you feel like it is a bit extreme and others you feel like it is sort of community Mm -hmm. there is a sort of exchange there's a a real positivity there but there's a lot to that's why I think it's so it's such a great story because you get like a sort of slice of life you get like these deeper reflections you get the whole thing about Babette and the war and food so it is it's an excellent short story and it's very unassuming I think like if you want if you start reading into it and you start thinking about these various connections even the interpersonal relationships you start to come out like oh mm, oh oh okay wow (laughs) yeah and I find that at different points in my life where I've read it like it has different meanings to me so it can appear as a story about uh, an entirely different uh, matter at you know when I'm when I was younger and reading it and uh, and now I understand different things you know from it so it's really yeah multi-layered and has kind of all these tiny uh, pockets of surprises that you suddenly you can read into something and it just takes you yeah to a different place but it's a magical story in many ways and I think yeah I just um, really admire the way that she's written it because it appears to be simple but it really really isn't Um, and it takes on these really strong issues you know to do and in a way that is not you know overtly yes it's about war but from an aspect which is slightly different from recounting the bloody violence of the commune which we will see you know in what way does she mourn her loss Babette has a very very special way of doing that and in many ways it feels like you're more involved in this so it's just wonderful you know it's very subtle in how it does that I'm really excited to talk about it because it's there are no easy answers there and Babette for like how little she is sort of in the story like even in terms of like size and how little she speaks she's so present and she's so interesting especially at the end I'm just like ah yes absolutely yeah and we'll see we'll see what happens because she is fleeing a very violent situation and um and when she appears at the doorstep of the two sisters she has a letter which introduces her to them from you know this this singer who had left disgraced by the fact that Philippa did not did not want him so he is sending Babette and we will see the connection then between Achille Papan and the yes the world of music and art and how Babette is connected to that so she is introduced by this letter and there's just this one sentence which says you know um, she is a good cook <laughs> and so we yes. will see that she is indeed a very good cook and she but she works for the sisters without wages as a maid and the, the sisters teach her how to cook this um, ale and bread soup and split cod and pre- she prepares soup pails for the poor um, and these poor start suddenly regenerating themselves like they, they take on a different life which they hadn't before so obviously something is happening in Babette's cooking and we start to see a glimmer of the magic that is entering through the what she cooks but in, very importantly and none of this none of the story really would happen without this very specific event that Babette has entrusted a friend in Paris with some lottery numbers. And she learns at some point that she has won 10,000 francs in the French lottery. 
And this is when the story starts to really open up because she requests that of the sisters that she be allowed to prepare this real French dinner in honor of their father's 100th birthday celebration. And you know, this, it's all kind of centered around this big feast. And she does not partake in this feast, by the way. So that's something else that we can also go and talk about the symbology of, because that's um, quite interesting. She's just cooking for others. Um, and the others are very scared of what she's about to cook because they suddenly see a giant turtle, you know, crawling <laughs> around in the kitchen. And there is a strangeness to these dishes. They're foreign. They, they don't, you know, so they, they're, the way that they deal with this is that they resolve not to say a single word about the food or drink during the meal. And they tell the others, don't speak about what you're about to eat or what you're about to drink. Just eat and drink it without commenting. Something interesting is that uh, General Lohenheim, who was the general that was in debt before and who had then left because Martin had not kind of reacted to his advances, um, he returns and he is the only, and he is a surprise guest. So then the number of people uh, at the feast is 12. So that it's 12 and that's, there's a religious symbology to that that we can talk about as well. But General Lohenheim is astounded by this meal and he cannot refrain from commenting on, on, on the meal because it reminds him of an exquisite dinner that he enjoyed in Paris at the Café Anglais. And he recognizes that the chef could only be the head chef of the Café Anglais. So there's this kind of big reveal and, um, and they're all enjoying this meal, but he is completely taken aback. And he makes some comments on, on the food, which we, we can yeah, talk about because it connects to the commune and to that period of time when Babette was um, in Paris. So yes, so then Babette kind of tells uh, Martine and Philippa that she was indeed the chef of the Café Anglais in Paris, and she has spent the whole of the entire, the entire 10,000 francs on this one dinner, so that she as an artist might be able to cook one last time as she used to. And of course, we'll come to see through the food she prepares, there's so much more to this feast than initially meets the eye. And yes, we can talk a little bit perhaps about the religious symbology. Sure. What did you think? But I don't know. I think we can. Like, it's, I am not, I, I have a, a theological interest, but it's uh, It's more from like a personal experience and that sort of thing. I'm not, it, it's one of the fun things about romancing the Gothics that like in the group, we have various yeah. focuses of analysis on theology alone from different yeah. perspectives. So like mine is definitely on that representation aspect of how that community is and how i think one of the fun things about the feast is that the feast is really like regenerative like it sort of heals this community back together after like the devastating loss of the the dean of the community and because like while the sisters kept things running sort of like the you know, those sort of petty conflicts, those discussions and arguments, those things start flaring back up. And yeah. the feast is like a moment of like regeneration of forgiveness of true community and being together. So yeah. especially like I hadn't noticed that there were 12 guests. Yeah. So that, oh, that, that becomes even more obvious of like such a such a crucial feast really that it, it is like it, this memory it is this celebration it is this 
communion, this unity. It's yeah, I I think this this is sort of my my approach to it. And even at like because a lot of the time in Gothic stories, be it from their anti-Catholicism or their even more at times like anti-clerical or anti-religious that varies more but to see like the community is never just one thing like as you mentioned like it's very the story is multi-layered in all pretty much all its aspects and the community isn't like we're told that it's oh it's a very restrictive very strict puritanical community but there isn't really like cruelty or that unhappiness it is is a restricted lifestyle but there isn't like that pain or torture or that level of being ascetic so and especially like when we're seeing this community and we're seeing like this return to these this memory of their times and the works they were doing together along the town and the city and in the routine thanks to Babette's work and cooking we are we get a really it's a community that it has this particular set of rules and lifestyle but it is one that is growing that is trying its best that it's you know trying to live out its message and it's it's really interesting like you rarely get that sort of picture especially with a a sort of small community in I forgot where we are in Norway yeah no you're absolutely right like and there is definitely as you mentioned the people that are part of this community be it because it's been a while now since the dean was alive and the sisters have taken over but and they are dedicated to this group, but people are starting to have little fights with each other. There starts to be a resurgence of memories of things that have been done in the past that people aren't happy with when it comes to one another. And that's, um, you know, there is, there starts to be conflict. And at the time when Babette comes in, so we see how this feast in some way apparently for that moment during the feast manages to change. We don't really have any evidence that that, that then this feast manages to solve problems in the future, you know, so it's for that moment. And that kind of takes me from the, from the, the religious reading of um, which there is, which absolutely is there because even the name itself, like Babette her saint, can be translated as herself a saint. Please, I apologize for my French accents, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, there is a big contrast between this cold, pious community in Norway and the sensuous, temperamental Paris that she brings with her food. And these, you know, it is in the food and drink that these points of view are played off one against the other. Um, so this puritanical rejection of enjoyment, and then we have luxuries and enjoyment of these luxuries on the other side. So the feast achieves a sort of reconciliation of these poles, and we see this magical moment where the people are communing. And But is it through, you know, something godly, or is it, can we go towards, Frank, a demonic reading of the text? <laughs> I ask you, what about that? <laughs> What about if we said that, you know, in in many, many points of the story, she is actually approximated to the figure of the witch. And we see actually in Blixen's Tales, there are others where the witch is a very positive and powerful representation of female creativity. So we see at some point that she is called a, a Pythia, I think you say Pythia, so the high priestess of the temple of Apollo at Delphi that served as its oracle and she she sits on a three-legged chair and she you know 
I think there is some sort of kind of hint at the fact that, the, that there is something diabolical that plays a part in assisting Babette as an artist. You know, I think that's what Blixen is possibly the point that she's putting across because there are so many references to magic and witchcraft. I think like it was really weird at some point she seems to be in possession of a magic carpet. <laughs> you know, so really kind of out, outlandish stuff. And then she has a helper. And it says in the story, like, like some witch with her familiar spirit. And um, yes, and so Babette is the 13th person at this feast and she stays in the kitchen. And yes, I just, you know, people have pointed out that 13 is obviously the number of a witch's coven. So yeah, there are a little kind of satanic, possibly satanic and devilish um, arrows pointing towards a demonic reading possibly yeah it makes sense especially like because you know food is a lot of times this extravagance this you know this sort of earthen paradise like we were talking about this the other day but it's this yeah. sort of medieval legend of this earthen paradise where you had endless food and like food was the yeah yeah so the never-ending it's like a never-ending source of great food Yes, you're right. I love that cocaine. Yeah, very similar. It is similar, actually. Yes. And like a never ending. But obviously here it is because it's it's kind of limited to what she can buy with the 10,000 francs. And I yes. love the fact that she goes to the harbour and she gets, you know, there's this boat, there's this boat coming through and she, you know, gets the food coming directly from France. So it's all from, you know, the source of where she wants to prepare a very authentic French meal as she would have done in the past. Yes, and it's the food that they haven't experienced. So they probably feel like they are in Paese de la Pucana. I'm sorry, I don't know how to say it in, in English. I don't know if it exists, but I think, yeah, it's just giving her a great power as well. It makes her, and I don't know if you notice in the text, like there are referenced, references to her in her physicality. She grows bigger in, in the eyes of um, the sisters. They suddenly see her kind of magnified. And when she starts talking about the the, the meal that she wants to prepare, she steps forward nearly, and the sisters say they can imagine her being a petroleuse during the commune at this point because like she steps forward as if she's holding a flag. So there's this real kind of crossover between the power of food and the power that she had and held before in a revolutionary in a revolutionary setting. So it's that crossover that really interests me as well what can food do um, as a channel of communication to show us you know politically um, the power that she had and we will talk as well the power that she had as a woman which you know in seeing the commune you know, they women were not uh, given kind of a formal place when it came to the council yeah. so you know there is a, a possible reading that she she exerts her power through let's say an underground channel and that is um, the channel of food so that's really interesting and she yeah becomes very powerful yeah no what do you think because this is like your area you're obviously the historian so I, I will <laughs> submit to your judgment everything that I say <laughs> about the commune and hopefully we can talk about the siege of Paris as well yeah no, I I kept thinking about it because like the um, you know you, you get various readings especially in literature of like how the commune happened or how to interpret that and I was really interested because we get a lot of the time that the sisters suspect that or 
I think Achille does tell them that she was fleeing the commune and that maybe she was a pit mm. but they never knew for sure and Babette never told them. So, right. so she was very, the, the sisters were very suspicious and sort of afraid, but most of the time they were like, oh, okay, like she, she's been helping, she's been very useful, she's been very meek and contained. In the feast, um, they see this very different Babette, like along the preparation, they're like, okay, maybe she is, she was, and maybe she is <laughs> some sort of witch, this sort of terrifying figure. Uh, that sounds likely now. Okay. Yeah. And in that final scene uh, where she is telling them about how she feels as a cook, as an artist and her history, which I will pull here because I just find it, it's a simple dialogue or sentence, but it does convey what Babette thinks and feels yeah. because she says that she, uh, that she is a great artist as a cook, which I agree and find amazing. And mm-hmm. But and they ask like, oh, but weren't you uh, a commoner? How can you grieve over having like lost your position, your possibility as a cook mm-hmm. for like for the nobility, for the elite, like you did? And she replies, if you'll allow me to. Um, yeah. uh, yes, she said, I was a commoner. Thanks be to God, I was a commoner. And those people whom I named, Madame, were evil and cruel. They let the people of Paris starve. They oppressed and wronged the poor. Thanks be to God, I stood upon a barricade. I loaded the gun for my menfolk. But all the same, Madame, I shall not go back to Paris. Now that those people of whom I have spoken are no longer there. You see, Madame, she said at last, those people belonged to me. They were mine. They had been brought up and trained with greater expense than you, my little ladies, could ever imagine or believe to understand what a great artist I am. I could make them happy. When I did my very best, I could make them perfectly happy. And does this sound to you, Frank, like someone who has at the forefront of her kind of mind and heart that of reconciliation amongst the villagers of a town that she probably doesn't really care about? (laughs) You know, this is the voice of an artist and she yes so powerful is her artistry that she is able even to to you know reference the very people that she used to cook for and who killed her own family she goes beyond because art goes beyond in her mind so she is cooking you know with something completely different uh, probably driving her which is uh, yes the power of art and it's interesting because when she arrives in Berlevag, obviously she doesn't know how to speak Norwegian. She only speaks French and the villagers don't know how to speak French. So there is no communication. In fact, throughout the text, we see they don't, there's no kind of conversation um, really in terms of, you know, it's more or less silence. And there's, which is where the food speaks for her in many ways when it comes to this, to this meal. Finally, she can let go by commemorating the past, she lets go of the past, I think. You know, she expresses herself through these dishes that represent all the pain and the loss that she's been through during the, the commune. So she communicates through food and she has a, an opportunity to communicate her loss. And so in this way, kind of enters this theory of dark food that I'm working on, where it's a reliving of the, a traumatic experience through food. And she's telling her story through food and the others are participating in this. Maybe they don't understand what's going on because perhaps the only person who does is the General Lohenheim who then appears to be changed by the speech that he gives at the end. Um, so her losses, Babette's losses have been so traumatic because she's not just 
lost her family and her home, but she's also lost her audience as an artist. And the general Galifé, who is referred to by the uh, general Lohenheim, who was among her foremost admirers, was also the one who ordered her husband and son to be shot. So it's a commemoration through this real French dinner, and it's the occasion that she has to begin mourning for her losses in France, which she hasn't done up until then, because I find it interesting, you mentioned to me in a previous conversation, you said, this is a community suspended in time nearly, where you know memory doesn't exist, and she enters this vacuum, and she has this chance to kind of start again, but also a chance to delve back and just work through her loss. Yeah, the, the feast really has this sort of personal mourning and historical function because it does sort of it, it's um it's almost a last hurrah but kind of even less than that because it's i mean the only people like truly aware are babette and the general so yeah. they're the only ones there partaking that sort of that last moment of like babette's great cooking and what all she did in at the cafe anglais so yeah. For the others, it is a sort of strange experience of like being there and just participating in this feast that they never had the opportunity and never will again. But right. for Babette and the general, for the general, it is this this moment of like, oh, it's all that. And for Babette, it's like it's this this last chance that she has to to connect with that past and the decisions she made, which she isn't. And, and that's one of the things that I find interesting. Like she embraces that and she's not regretful of that. She pains them and pains the way th things came to happen, but she really does. This is what I did and I stand by it. And I do still at the same time miss all that I did. I miss being able to, to cook. I miss my family. I miss all that I lost via the Paris Commune and the bloody massacre afterwards. But, and this feast is sort of, I, I really agree uh, when you mentioned that it is this opportunity for her to like, if it, okay, I don't think it's then a conciliation of the community then, but it's a conciliation of the bed with herself really, with her cooking, with her stance and with all she did. And I, I am still impressed and, Odd at how deep and interesting Babette is on the few lines of dialogue we get from her and the little history we have. So much is revealed and you know also the fact that she's dealing with this trauma really only comes to light when we see her at work with the food and so we'll go into the food now but there's just something I want to say about the Paris Commune in this context which I think is interesting. Something as well to do with because I was thinking this is an unusual and I, I know that the legacy of the commune is a lot bigger than the legacy of the siege of Paris because of, you know, the various reasons to do with socialism and how that uh, came, came, you know, in the future with, you know, Lenin was wrapped in the, in a flag of the communards when he was, and then the, the Shanghai commune, commune as well, there's a, there's a nod to, to the French commune with that. So it's kind of been perpetuated more in time compared to the siege of, of Paris. So maybe we can talk a bit about that afterwards because that's, that's such an interesting thing. But there's one really important thing about the Paris Commune and that is that, I, I mean, we can argue that the Paris Commune failed because of hunger. And we will go into maybe some more technical details of why that is. But I feel that Babette is kind of exercising her culinary artistry 
as a commemoration of this loss because it was a real, a real slap in the face for the Parisians. They were doubly um, felt betrayed, you know. So um, I think that through her food, she is asserting again this power of her as a petroleuse on the barricades of the Paris Commune and fighting for the cause of the poor. And she's and she's really kind of yeah. So cooking for these poor villagers compared to the aristocrats that she used to cook for. And interestingly, her father, William Dinerson, was a writer and army officer, and he was also in the 1864 war by Denmark against Prussia. So he wrote a lot about um, the commune in Paris. And um, whereas her mother came from a wealthy Unitarian family. So I kind of suddenly, yeah, researching on this, saw how perhaps the two sides of her life came together in this story. And she put so much into it because it's just so brilliant. And we'll see now through the food, how she relives her trauma and what each dish means, starting from the turtle, the giant turtle, <laughs> which is not a mock turtle soup, which is normally cooked with a calf's head, I believe, but this is a real turtle soup. So it's there and it's alive and it's crawling on the kitchen floor, isn't it? And it really scares the sisters. It's nearly a comical moment. And it's, um, it's interesting because it's a delicacy of marker, a delicacy and marker of aristocracy. So it's also, you know, the turtle as a symbol, it kind of has holds the symbol of longevity and endurance. And it's, it kind of gained popularity in the 1750s, but it was a really expensive dish and very time consuming to prepare. You know, it took a lot of space and effort and physical effort to actually to prepare. So it came to serve as a metaphor for wealth. So we can see why she chose that because she wants to, you know, only have the best at this dinner. And it's what she probably would have prepared at the Café Anglais. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to eat turtle soup, Frank. <laughs> no, unfortunately not, or fortunately not. <laughs> but then she has uh, the Blinis Demidoff. Now they don't exist in the classic French repertoire, but the terms do exist separately. And blinis are small pancakes, you know, in pre-Christian times, they were considered to be a symbol of the sun. So traditionally they were prepared at the end of winter to honor the birth of the new sun. And then the second part of this dish, Demidoff. Now Demidoff might refer to Elizabeth Demidoff. And here we go back to Père Lachaise. So the cemetery where we have the last stand of the communard fighters and the surviving fighters are shot against the famous wall of Federé. And this becomes iconic in the story of the Paris Commune, obviously. But legend has it that Elizabeth Demidoff, a descendant of a Russian industrialist family, after the breakdown of an unhappy marriage with uh, Nikolai Demidoff, went um, to live in Paris and she died at the age of 40 in 1818 and made the unusual request in her will that she would leave a million francs to the person who would spend a year and a day in her tomb alongside her body. And that person could read whilst there, but they could not utter a single word. So I wonder if there was any inspiration for Karen Blixen, you know, for this part of the, of the story, who knows? I'm not too sure, um, but and just as an aside, the request was never fulfilled. No one sat by Elizabeth Demidoff for a year and a day. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we have our Kyle in sarcophage. Now, um, this is a really interesting dish um, because it is quails encased in pastry. And 
I think it's quite obvious that they are clearly a metaphor for death. So, you know, you can be here today and then you can be in a coffin tomorrow is basically what it means. And this is, you know, the, the, the part of the meal where the general declares that it can only be the chef of the Café Anglais who has made these. As this was her signature dish. And this is a culmination of the feast, you know, so you get a really visceral eating, you get dark flavours and you get death on the table. So also the fact that the woman is a chef is remarked upon. And here we can link, you know, again, to the role of women in the commune, um, which was, you know, they were very, uh, they had a strong role when it came to, I guess, you know, the street politics. But when it came to the formal politics of like having a voice within the organization of the commune, uh, they were very much not present. So again, we have the fact that Blixen has brought to the fore the fact that this is a woman chef, and that's an, un an unusual thing, obviously, for that time. The Kailin sarcophage, again, kind of, we can reflect on the fact that it's very much to do with her reliving the death of her possibly her, yeah, her, her husband and her son. And um, yes, there's a lot of, I think, interesting work been done on media as a site for memory and reliving traumatic events. And a lot of this work has been done by Alison Landsberg, who's a professor in the field of memory studies, who wrote a book called Prosthetic Memory. So she explains the concept of cultural forms such as media that are able to create transferential areas and they instill symptoms or prosthetic memories. And I, I believe that in many ways, Babette is trying to do this to her guests. So she's trying to instill these memories of her loss, of her pain, but the transfer, transferential area for her is obviously the meal, is a table. When Landsberg talks about this, she refers to the Jewish Passover and how the Exodus is remembered and reenacted via a roasted egg and a shank bone, the herbs, the chopped apples, the cinnamon and wine, the parsley and salt water, all are foods that symbolize and help to recall events that were not really experienced in first person, but it turns this oral cultural memory into an experiential event so that the whoever's participating, you know, can be partake in this religious moment. And this obviously is an example specific to Jewish people, but what makes some memories prosthetic is that they're made transportable through mediums. And in this case, she, Babette is making it transportable through the medium of food. So she's saying here in my, the dead bodies of my family, you know, this is my story and eat and partake because I am in pain and I am working through this. And so, you know, we're doing this together in many ways and she's expressing herself in this way. So that's kind of my take on what on what this meal is in terms of, yeah, the loss that she's experienced from the revolution, the commune and the revolutionary upheaval. Yeah, that makes uh, I really like that reading because <laughs> I think it really does stand because while and her when she started talking about doing it as an artist, I, I mean, she mentions it later and like I, I knew that was coming that like she didn't do the feast for like oh there were 100 years of the dean and his death and the community she did it for herself yeah <laughs> she she spent the 10,000 francs not to eat the food or to have the food be eaten by them but so she could prepare so she could cook it so she cre could create that experience for them that she did not want a part of that she no wasn't a part yeah. of it. it was the preparation it was like the time consuming like the, the incredible detail the singularity of it it's it's about her capabilities as an artist as a cook as a chef 
that she expresses herself via the food, via the cooking, and via her own past, her own story, her own memories. Yeah, absolutely. And she's, you know, I think also, is she referred to as like a statue? So it's nearly like she's erecting a monument to this, to what's happened. So she wants to commemorate it. And I think, as Margaret Visser says, who wrote a really ex two excellent books, Much Depends on Dinner and The Rituals of Dinner, you know, it's nearly like many, many power struggles occur through food. So it's an opportunity for her. And, you know, food is a really powerful metaphor for love and sharing, but it can also be a powerful metaphor for the social constraints and things that are enforced and what oppresses people. And, and you know, through cooking again, these meals, you know, it's like establishing a new relationship, a renewed relationship with the past, because every time you cook something, it's never really the same, in the same way that every time we remember an event, it's never really the same. There are standardized, but it, but that even the standard memories that one has, or that one has through media, are never really the same. It depends on what's happening at this point in time. And so, you know, I think that when Babette arrives in Norway in, in its June 1871, which is after well, the commune has been destroyed. So there's an, you know, her speech is interrupted socially because of this violent upheaval. And in some ways, this is her chance through the food to reestablish some sort of discourse and put her point across, I think. Yeah, nothing to do with, <laughs> with like the generosity of spirits of you're wanting, you know, these people to reconcile, which actually, if you watch the film, I think like there's more emphasis on that religious aspect and charitable aspect. But I think this is, yeah, I think it's kind of overturned in many ways. It depends on, yeah, on the reading that you want. I'm not saying it's, it's absolutely not um, incorrect. It's just, you know, what, whatever way you want to view it, there are multiple opportunities to read this story in different ways. Oh, absolutely. And I think if you start yeah. centering Babette and like her own position in the story, like, Again, the title, like it's Babette's feast. It's not the yes. Dean's feast, it's not the hundred years, right. it's her feast. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. Like that as like a more a more intense and more powerful reading of the story and of Babette as a character. That she she is sort of finding herself again or establishing her identity and who she wants to be and who she is. Yes. It's it's a strange exercise of like I won't say it's denial, but it kind of as like this last moment of creating all this again, but it's a denial for uh, an understanding and reconciliation of herself of, yes, it's this last moment that I'm able to do this goodbye that I didn't get the chance to given all everything that happened, but that also is allowing me to understand that all that has passed and to grieve, to mourn. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as a form of mediation, cooking kind of reflects and the act of incorporating into society an ideology of struggle and change. And I think perhaps not enough has been said about, you know, during the siege of Paris and the Commune, the struggle that there was with food and why that occurred, you know, and how really the downfall was due to hunger and why that was, because it was a double siege in many ways. And as we've said, we don't remember the siege of Paris as much as we do the Commune. But really, it was like a two in one disaster, wasn't it? And I think what makes it particularly kind of difficult, I think, as well, was the fact that there were so many high expectations placed on the victory of France, because 
definitely Napoleon III, you know, was someone who was trying to establish um, his supremacy and, and, you know, at the same time, also the Prussians. But it was definitely not, I think, in people's minds that, that, the, that the French would have necessarily lost because they were very well fortified. And I just think there was definitely a surprise element there. There was some, and I think socially, things were interrupted in such a way that it was a, a kind of shock through food in many ways. So yeah, I think yeah, there were like 10 meter high walls surrounding the city. There were moats, you know, there were heavy guns and lots of guardsmen had, resp had responded for, to the call up from the government. So the city was kind of well prepared for this siege and it was so well prepared, it was totally sealed off, which meant also, of course, that food couldn't get in and out. <laughs> And um, it was very difficult in terms of food. I think, you know, the city had enough food at the start of the siege that had been calculated would, would last approximately 80 days and enough fuel as well to last about that time. But they realized that it wasn't going to be quite so simple because for instance, they had thousands of sheep and cows, but they didn't think of providing cows for milk. So of course the children suffered and then they introduced rationing for meat. And that was in around October 1870 and bread rationing didn't come in until much later. But in the meantime, things had become really difficult. So they had, once the more conventional meats had been eaten, they started having to turn to killing domestic animals. So, and killed around 65,000 horses for food. And, you know, so yeah, I think hunger had everything to do with the turn of events in, in the commune. And I think that's, um, that's quite an interesting thing when it comes to this story, because um, obviously I think Babette is using food. You know, there's a thread, a thread with food that just runs across everything. And many people, I think, felt that they'd been defeated by hunger alone. So when, when in Versailles there was the German unification and then there was this victory parade through Paris, I mean, I think, you know, this was a real, real shock. And so... They took things in their own hands, the Parisians, and this is when the commune came into being. And so then this is the part I think that we remember the most, so the commune. And there were so many privations that kind of carried on from the siege as well. But again, and lots of different things were done to, you know, things like, I don't know, the separation of church and state and trying to ban night work for bakers and improve the conditions for workers. But I think what's really important is that absolutely nothing was done to improve the social conditions of women and nothing was done to give them greater political rights. And so, um, you know, women are silent really. And I love the fact that Babette, that Blixen gives this character such a strong voice through food, a non-conventional channel of communication and transformation really. So that's my, my view on, on that. Yeah, food is Babette's voice. Yeah. Totally. We were talking about communication earlier. It is what she uses to express herself. And maybe only one person will listen, or maybe it's only for her to say and no one to listen. But that's not important to her, especially yeah. at that time. But I think that reading of the commune really makes sense. I'm thinking of like, there weren't that many, but like both this story and another book I read last year, I think, mm -hmm. which was um, A Werewolf in Paris. Just okay. also about or in the Paris Commune and the question of food and hunger and this appears as well and, and like it is having had the privilege of 
attending a few lectures and a few classes on like the history of food or food and drugs. And especially like having met you and, and learned a lot about like this readings of food and, and this crucial aspect, like food and feeding and eating is a crucial aspect of like events and, and history. And the Paris Commune can be a really powerful example of that and the role that that plays. So it's not it's not like a, a small aspect or a tangential. No, the hunger, the food supply, the rationing, the the siege is a crucial part to understanding a lot of the commune, to understanding how things collapsed, or shall we say, were rushed to collapse. So, and the story also brings that point. It's a lot more subtle, but it's again, it's another layer that exists. Like you're talking about extreme, the most like high class, expensive food you can have when talking about the Paris Commune. Like the the, the different levels are clearly there, even if it, it takes a yeah. little time to get it. Yeah. And I really think that to sort of make, make this point that one of the great absences is you're push, putting off the commune like in this like formal administrative aspect of lacking mm-hmm. and pushing away women and how Babette is like, she will not be pushed away. <laughs> she yeah. like, she is gentle. She's honest. So like asking for the feast, but like she, she was going to do the feast and she did the feast. Yes. And because it's important to her and her own role and her own position and her own desires as an artist. So it is sort of this coming to being again, or like stating who she is strongly. Like I am this cook. I am this chef. I am this great artist. And while the cafe and the people and all that is gone, I am still here and I can still do this. Even if I won't be able to, I definitely yeah. can. And I no longer cease to be an artist. Yes, absolutely. And it's like, not a, you know, it's bringing, bringing back to life again, this memory of a great Paris where, you know, there was rich food and wealth and prosperity. And um, even though she herself fights against those very guests that she feeds, you know, so we have therein is like the real contrast that you can, that food is so good at encapsulating this dark and light of everything, you know, there's a real, yeah, I just find it quite moving. There's such a probably kind of uh, just a surprise factor when it comes to, to the siege of Paris and then following into the commune, because, you know, Napoleon III, I think, you know, he was basically possibly overconfident I just think that there was a lack of preparation and like possibly um, too much optimism when it comes to to the result of the war and what in that would have gone in France's favor and I think yeah people are kind of shocked by this and they rally together and they just manage even through the scarcity of food to stay and stick together and really fight during the commune which is um is quite amazing you know um and I think that Babette carries forward this sense of like stubbornness and, you know, in her own character. And it, it does come through through her, through her food. Yeah, of like truly achieving something amazing. Yeah. Kind of against all odds or really surprisingly. Like, I mean, one of my favorite episodes of the commune is like the, the bring, the, the destruction of the Van Dome column. Yeah. Which was this very ugly column like uh, mimicked on the roman columns that you've had in ancient history and but with the giant statue of napoleon on the top and the the commune amongst 
it's many things brought it down which was a really time consuming effort and expense and yet it's very such a powerful event there are lots of pictures there are lots of pictures of the commune in general one of the first yeah. major photographed events yes i remember you mentioned this in your podcast in the the when you when you talk about it previously and i didn't know that that's really really interesting so it's kind of yeah through photographs of course it's like more remembered compared to other other things that when photography didn't really exist yeah absolutely yeah yeah i just think it's just sad you know this overconfidence and this kind of war this battle between napoleon and bismarck it's just so it's so fascinating and like both yeah kind of yeah napoleon kind of ended up in an exile in england um dying in chiselhurst really weirdly <laughs> uh, which is yeah, just so many kind of striking little events that that um that make this a really kind of special historical period but i think yes no one possibly thought that it would end up in this early phase as a prussian victory so i find that really interesting yeah and i think that impacted on on people's minds you know when it came to 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 kind of getting together and fighting but also the lack possibly of preparation yeah definitely yeah. important things to to learn from and understand of like just food really and supplies yeah. and supplies yes yeah so I think the fact that then the commune was kind of administering things locally so even food rations were administered locally at some point but I think like all this as I said I think came a little bit too late so you know and it was a long it was a relatively long siege so I think it's um it's a great way of portraying this conflict um that Blixen has and um and I think it's uh, if we could study history through stories like this I think a lot a lot more people would be interested in in history as well yeah yeah and, and like one of I think what we did and what we've been doing is kind of what I want to do with my own research which is like not just oh applying uh, a fictional story or literature to a particular time but just like what has this story as literature as fiction is telling us from its creation and like this work on Babette, on the food, what can it tell us, what can it help us to understand these various relationships and interpretations of the commune. So yeah, no, this, uh, th this was excellent. This was brilliant. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I mean, it's one of my favorite stories. I absolutely love this historical period anyway. And yeah, I think, I think Karen Blixen or Isaac Tennyson is just a, an amazing writer. So um yes highly highly recommend this story yes i hope i hope we've done it justice to you and to the story itself i hope so no for me absolutely i've i've yeah i'm really really happy um to have spoken with you about this and also get your insight onto it from also a historical perspective you know things are evolving all the time and the way and the kind of focus that we place on history changes sometimes so it's really good to always go back to texts like this um, and maybe reevaluate them based on things that are changing and how how we view things differently now even things of the past you know we're discovering new things and learning new things so it's always a good opportunity to look back in time I think yeah I agree is there anything else that you want to mention about the story as a sort of like as we close off I think no I think we've said we said so much Thank you for listening to me. <laughs> thank you for coming on and thank you for listening to us. <laughs> <laughs>
So yeah, thank thank you, thank you for being here, Ali. Thank you for coming. Thank you for for sharing so much, what, what your work, what you've been doing, and like this sort of doing this work in practice here uh, was so much fun. So much fun. Oh. As a sort of and also like a, similar to what I want to do and what I've been doing really uh, with my own research, if not focusing on food, unfortunately. <laughs> I'll leave that to you. Oh, good. Whenever you need uh, that focus, just give me a call. I'm here. (laughs) Yes. uh, I I mean, uh, that's the thing. Like, once you start thinking about this, you start looking more at food whenever you're reading something and you're like, "Mm." hmm. Say that to me. They're like, now I notice all this other stuff. Oh, I know. I know. It's great, though, really, isn't it? It's like, yeah, as we said, like a new voice to to take into consideration. Um, But it's it's a very kind of untapped reserve up until now. So I'm... I'm really delighted to be just one of those few people just looking at the food aspect when it comes to stories like this, you know. So, yeah, it's something new and very, very exciting. And um, thank you for allowing me to share this with with people. It's of course. Great. Thank you. It's been so much fun. Sorry, I just wanted to say that if you want to support us at um, Unbound, uh, just look up a Gothic cookbook and you will find us there. And any support is very, very gratefully received. Thanks again. Yes, please go support a Gothic cookbook if you can. I will have the link on the description and on the uh, post release on Twitter as well, of course. And if you also want to check, the a Gothic cookbook has both a Twitter and Instagram accounts, which you, ha- you can see some of the pictures, some of the art, some of the cooking and the drink preparation. So please do check those out. Please support a Gothic cookbook. It's great. And if anyone wants to follow me personally, um, you can do so on Twitter at food for flow, which is food for and then F-L-O, flow. And also obviously at a Gothic cookbook, as Frank said. Yes, uh, please, please follow Ali, please support her work. And yeah, from us, I think um, you can find us on, on Twitter as well at, twi- at Left Page Pod and on Patreon where we have or where I've been doing both the the reading corner where I get a, a, a short story work or like particular research material that wouldn't make it into a, an episode so far or yet and talk about it a bit, a little essay. And the what I've been dubbing the writer's desk where I have been trying to work or starting to think of the relationship between writing fiction and politics from like a writing point of view or like how do I connect these things together or don't? How do I understand them? So this is going to be hard, but it's going to be fun. So yeah, please do check us out and support us if you can. Uh, but if not, that's okay. But also, even more importantly today, go support a Gothic cookbook on Unbound. Please do. Be so grateful if you did. And yeah, thank you again, Ellie. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And I'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye, Frank. Thank you. <laughs>